Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel 21. We'll read verses 1 through, well, we'll read the whole chapter. It says, The word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, what should I do for you? And how can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Then the Gibeonites said to him, we have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house. Nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, I will do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, the man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord which was between them, between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. So the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, Armoni and Mephibosheth, whom she had borne to Saul, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. Then he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together. And they were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of of barley harvest. And Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until it rained on them from the sky. And she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night." And when it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines struck down Saul and Gilboa. He brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah, in the grave of Kish, his father. Thus they did all that the king commanded, and after that God was moved by prayer for the land. Now when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David went down and his servants with him. As they fought, and as they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. Then Ishbi Benab who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze in weight, was girded with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle, so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. 
Now it came about after this that there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sebekai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was among the descendants of the giant. There was war with the Philistines again at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jer, Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. There was war at Gath again, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also had been born to the giant. When he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would feed us from this passage. We know that all scripture is inspired by you and is profitable for training and correction and living in righteousness. Father, we pray that you would bless us again through your word preached. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So we're back in 2 Samuel. Usually I'd be down front and it'd be a little bit more casual, but be, for, the sake of the, uh, for the sake of the live stream, I'm up here. And so it feels a little awkward for me, but I've felt awkward my whole life, so <laughs> there's nothing new there. Um, so we're back in 2 Samuel. We, we moved away from it for a while. And I want, uh, it is my goal to preach through the rest of this book, and, uh, and then I have a few ideas about where we go from there, but um, I'm still working those out. So my goal is to get through the end of Second Samuel during the evening services. Remember, this is late in the reign of, Dave, of King David. It's very, um, <clears throat> often chapters 21 through 24 are seen as an appendix to the book. And uh, because they seem to not be in chronological order with what have, what's come before, um, I, I don't really know <clears throat> if I agree with that. Um, Solomon is, he's waiting, I mean, he's in the wings, right? Solomon will, his reign will take, uh, will be coming very soon. Months ago, we covered verse 1, and uh, you may or may not remember that. Um, but we covered verse 1, God brought a famine in the land during the days of David because of Saul's sin against the Gibeonites. Now, it's interesting because when a famine comes, oftentimes the people of God don't know why it's there or why it's come, and um, there may not be a specific purpose for that other than to um, discipline the children of God. But in this case, David inquires of the Lord and is given a specific reason why this famine has occurred. And that famine has occurred because King Saul decided to break covenant with the Gibeonites. Right? You remember who the Gibeonites are? The Gibeonites, we have to go back to the time of Joshua. Right? This is several centuries earlier. We have to go back to the time of Joshua and Joshua is taking the land and along come these people whose shoes are worn out and whose bread is all crusty and dry, right? And they say, um, give, us, give us a place to live. We come from a long distance away and they made covenant with, with Israel, but th- what, what it turns out, those guys were just from up the road a little bit, 
right? They were from Greenville. And, and, and so there was that dilemma, right? Do we, did, did we, uh, do we keep this covenant or not? We're supposed to eradicate the people of the land. We're supposed to take the land. And yet, because they made that covenant, made that vow before the Lord, God was going to hold them to it. And then God told them that if they, were, if they broke that covenant, they would be punished for breaking that covenant. And that's what we see played out here two centuries later, is them being punished for breaking covenant, or Israel being punished because their covenant head, Saul, broke that covenant with, with um, the Gibeonites. We don't read about that, what Saul did. We don't read about what he did anywhere in Scripture. So it's just implied in the Scripture that at some point he, he wanted to eradicate the Gibeonites to encourage the people of God. But um, we're not given a play-by-play on that. So King David, um, because he learns this, goes and calls to him whatever representatives of the Gibeonites remain. And he asks them, what can I do for you? Uh, why the question? Why, why is he pursuing this? Well, obviously, he's looking for an end to the famine. He wants to bring this famine to an end. It's been misery. Think of famine for three straight years, year after year. Uh, it would feel like that famine was going to go on forever. And so he... He's questioning them because he wants to get to the end of it. End of it. But look at his language. He says, um, what should I do for you and how can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? How can I make atonement? What, 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 um, what reparations, right? What, what, um, what payment can be made so that um, things can be made right again, okay? And that's, that's really the question he's asking. And the Gibeonites say, well, silver and gold from Saul's house is not going to do. We're not interested in silver and gold from Saul's house. We're not interested in money. That's not our concern. Um, so not reparations, as we understand them, not money, not a payment that would sort of pay off their... Uh, them that's that's not what they want nor and then they say nor do we we know what we think should happen but we don't have the authority to do it right they say um, we have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house nor is it is it for us to put any man to death in Israel right we don't have authority we can't we can't call upon um, people to be put to death. And then David says, well, it wouldn't be you putting them to death. It'd be me putting them to death. What can I do for you? Right? I will do for you whatever you say. Um, so, and David certainly, as the head of the nation, as uh, the king, had that power of the sword to um, put to death criminals. Right? He had that power to command the execution of of criminals. And so he asks them what they can do. The Gibeonites say, okay, um, let's execute seven sons of Saul in his hometown. Let's kill seven sons of Saul. Now there, there's, 
some tension that's built in here, and David resolves it in a certain way. Remember, David had already covenanted with, with uh, Jonathan, the son of Saul, to protect his household, right? And so Jonathan and the, his descendant Mephibosheth is protected, and yet the, the sons of a concubine and the sons of another wife of Saul are the ones chosen to be executed, and so, um, so David, David fulfills that covenant that he made with Jonathan, even as he's uh, trying to um, clean up Saul's uh, breaking of the covenant with the, the Gibeonites. Now, what's weird about this? What are, what are you all thinking right now? That's right. The sons, it is very clear in the law of God that the son should not be put to death for the sins of the father. Numbers 35, 31, moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a, a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. Actually, Deuteronomy 24, fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Right? So we have that going on in the text, and, and we wonder, okay, what's, um, what's going on here? So the, the previous verse, Numbers 35, 31 that I read, says, Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. Right? There, if there is murder that occurred, then it needs to be dealt with by murdering the murderer, right? by putting to death the murderer. Clearly, that's in the law. Right? The murderer should be punished who is guilty. But then we have Deuteronomy 24.16 that says fathers should not be put to death for their sons, nor sons for their fathers. Okay, so that's hanging in the back of our heads. And <clears throat> yet David says, I'll do it. I'll give them to you. There's another factor in this as well, and it has to do with blood guiltiness, right? You know in the Old Testament law that there's this concept of blood guiltiness, that by the sins of the people, the, the land becomes polluted, right? And so there's a blood guiltiness of the land that can only be removed by the blood of the criminal, the ones who have defiled the land, Right, and so, <clears throat> so David may be thinking along those lines, right? And he's always he's already heard from the Lord that this famine has occurred, the scourge upon the whole of Israel has happened, this blood guiltiness is clear because of that famine, and he's trying to navigate his way using whatever wisdom he has to uh, to come out of it. And so he says, I'll do it, and the king then works out this, um, he spares Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of that oath that he had made, and, and then he takes the two sons of Rizpah, and Rizpah is a concubine of Saul, and then the five sons of Merib, who was a daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholothite. He gave them in the hands of the Gibeonites. They hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. Notice it says they hanged them before the Lord, before Yahweh. 
so that the seven of them fell together and they were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. No doubt in a famine, that's a significant time, right? When the harvest is about to come in, you want the scourge to be taken away from the land uh, so that they might bring in a, um, a hall of harvest. And then we get this picture of this concubine, Rizpah. And this is a very, um, I don't know, for me it's a very, what's the word, cinemagraphic scene. It would make for a good scene of a movie, right? The, her son is hanging from uh, the tree and the water is pouring down, right? And she's lamenting and then the birds come along and she's, she's pushing away the birds that are... Um, are defiling his decaying body, right? And um, she's got, you know, she, she's spread out sackcloth. This is clearly uh, an act of, of great sorrow and an act of, of repentance. Now, it, it makes the point that she kept the birds of the sky from resting on them, and she, she kept the beasts of the field away. And that's because leaving corpses without burial to be consumed by um, birds of prey and wild beasts was regarded as a terrible disgrace, a terrible defiling of, of the body. And it was sort of the worst thing that could befall you if you died is to not be buried, is to, is to be laid open to just um, the, the predators of the sky and of the, of the field. Um, 1 Samuel 17, you remember what Goliath says to David. Goliath says to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. He wants to disgrace David. Goliath did. And so you see that 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 idea of um, of the the bodies being exposed was a disgrace, and if you go through Scripture, it becomes very clear that that um, Christians, the people of God, bury their dead. They bury their dead. They do not um, expose them. They do not burn them, and uh, they bury them. And that, that is the way that our Savior was, was um, uh, after he died, that's the way that his body was laid in a tomb. And, I mean, we could, go th- we could go through the scriptures and show you that it was the pagans that burned their bodies, and it was the people of God who buried them. And that's because to be buried is to testify that their body will rise again. We don't destroy bodies. We plant them in the ground to be resurrected at the last days. And so that is a testimony to the resurrection. Putting bodies in the ground is a testimony, right? Rather than spreading ashes uh, to the elements. um, This is a Christian testimony. Not that somebody who's been burnt can't be resurrected. I'm not saying that at all, but, um, but it is the uniform testimony of Scripture that there are w- ways that you, def- you can defile the dead body and ways that you can honor the dead body. And consistently, Scripture says burial is the way to treat dead bodies. 
And so that, that is confirmed also in this passage. So David then goes and buries. He, he finds, you remember that Saul's, Saul and Jonathan, their bodies were stolen and uh, what were they? They were um, pinned to the wall of Jabesh Gilead. Right, And now all those bones are collected, the bones of these seven sons are collected, and they are buried. And where are they buried? They're buried in the grave of Saul's father, Kish. So they've come back to uh, Jabesh Gilead, they've come back to his hometown, they've buried his body, and they, um, and then what does it say after that in verse 14? It's at that point that it says, God was moved by prayer for the land, for the land, right? And God was moved by prayer for the land. And so it seems that what David has done and what has happened here has brought about this atonement that was required for the land so that the famine could come to an end and the mercy of God would be shown. And notice what it says that, what is the means of God having mercy upon the land? It's that he began to hear their prayers again, right? He began to hear their prayers again. God turns his ears away from people whose land is polluted by blood guiltiness, which should fill us with great fear, right? That God would turn his ear away from our land, which is undoubtedly filled with blood guiltiness, the shedding of the blood of preborn babies to an extraordinary scale, all of which have been a sacrifice made to a pagan god, the pagan god of comfort and of I'll be the arbiter of my own destiny. And so at this point, David buries Saul, Jonathan, the seven sons, in the grave of Kish. And, um, and God relents, verse 14. He again hears their pray prayers. And then the rest, the end of the book, which I'm not really going to spend any more time on, is a list of, of triumphs over the Philistines, these uh, battles. The one thing I will point out from that is that it says that David... David is, it seems to be tired, he's weary, he's, he's not of age to be at battle anymore. And they tell him, look, it's, it's time to, to hang up the old sword and um, we'll, we'll fight for you. Um, but it's encouraging to see that David is, is not off uh, during the time that kings go to war, off back in the city lusting for women, rather he's out there um, battling. And so... Uh, I have nothing to say about the six-fingered and six-toed man. <laughs> I don't know, but I could make some sort of allegorical um, interpretation out of that somehow, you know, the number six. But, um, but I won't, okay? I will have mercy upon you. So some applications that come out of this passage to me, and... And, I, you know, I'm not sure I can resolve the tension of the text. The tension of the text between, between sons 
being, being killed for the sins of their father and, um, and atonement being made through the death of, uh, through human sacrifice. Uh, and, uh, but nonetheless, the, the Lord was pleased with these actions and these actions led to him again hearing the prayers of the people. And so we can't just dismiss, uh, dismiss them outright, but we also can't make them normative because uh, we have the law there. I mean, one of the ways that perhaps it can be explained is that the act of Saul against the Gibeonites was an act of state. And so David acting as the head of state is now bringing those things to a resolution through his authority as king. That's about as close as I can get, but nonetheless, the passages that we mentioned earlier still um, stick uh, with me. But here, here's some applications that I draw out of this. David is a covenant keeper. Saul is not a covenant keeper and never was. There's a difference between, one of the major differences between David and Saul is that David keeps his covenants and Saul breaks his covenants. Saul, um, Saul disregarded this covenant with the Gibeonites that had been kept for 200 years. And David is concerned about that to the point where he even uh, brings about this atonement. And, but also in the midst of this, you see him keeping covenant with Jonathan as well. He said that he would protect the household of Jonathan, and he does that. Even, so David is the sort of man that keeps his covenants, keeps his promises, even when it's painful, which is our calling as, as Christians, is to keep those promises we've made even when it's painful. We should be the sort of people whose yes is yes and no is no, right? Covenants, uh, covenants made before God must be kept even when those covenants hurt, even when to keep them is very, very painful, um, even if that covenant was made centuries earlier, it's still our obligation to keep that covenant. And covenants come in different, different forms, don't they? Some covenants are small, like, yeah, I'll pick you up from the airport. That's a covenant. It's a covenant you make to somebody, and you've promised them to do it, and um, they're expecting your faithfulness. And so we should, be, we should be the sort of people who, when we say we're going to do something, we do it. When we say we're not going to do something, we don't do it. And it should be as simple as that. And then there are large covenants that we make. We make before witnesses and we make before God. Marriage, right, and church membership. Those are big covenants. Those are big covenants with witnesses, right, that we are called to remain faithful to and what are the witnesses supposed to do if you are tempted not to remain faithful? They're to come to you and say, idiot, don't you dare break covenant. Don't you dare go against what you vowed before the Lord. Right? Be faithful. Be faithful. Okay, so that's one thing is, is covenant keeping. David keeps covenant. Saul was a great example of somebody who would not keep covenants, right? Remember when he said, I mean, you can think of a lot of examples in Saul. I won't go through them, but um, 
It's the, the times when he took matters into his own hand and did not listen to the prophet, did not listen to what he would have him do. He, he went his own way. There's another application. Sons suffer. Now this is, this, I have to be a little bit nuanced on. Sons suffer the consequences of the sins of their fathers. That's uncontroversial, right? Sins of the fathers are visited upon the children, right? Sons will suffer the consequences of the sins of their fathers. And the sons, and the sons at times should make amends and rectify wrongs that have committed, been committed by the fathers, right? We see this like in the book of Nehemiah when Nehemiah is, is confessing the sins of the fathers that led to the mess that they are in with the walls of, of Jerusalem being broken down and, and God's wrath resting upon the people of Israel, there's Nehemiah, one of the sons, crying out to God and saying, forgive us for the sins of our fathers. Right. So ignoring what, what we have a tendency to want to do, and this is, this is uh, contemporary, isn't it? We have a tendency to want to ignore the evils of a previous generation, but that's not an option. Right? We must either repent of them or suffer the consequences. We do have an obligation to repent of the sins of previous generations. Right? Because there are consequences that are resting upon us for that lack of repentance. But the punishment for those sins does not fall upon the sons. Right? That scripture makes clear. There may be consequences... But those who committed the sins, the punishment should have fallen on them. And if it didn't, that's it. Okay? But the consequences are still upon us, and we, we should do what we can to repent of them. You make your own applications from that as you, uh, as you want. Um, last question, a little more on this. Was David right to do what he did? Um, He didn't ha at least we don't have recorded that he had command from God to, to do this. He had inquired of the Lord about why the famine, and God had told him why the famine, but did he have a command to put to death the sons of Saul? Uh, it's not recorded here. We, we don't. Um, some suggest he was justified because Saul had carried out a crusade against the whole house of the Gibeonites, and so it was appropriate to take punishment to the whole house of Saul. And indeed, this is a fulfilling of the prophecy against Saul's household, that it would be destroyed. Right? So God is working out his plan in this. Perhaps some of the sons or the grandsons participated. We don't know that either. Perhaps some of the sons participated in killing. Perhaps these seven sons participated in the uh, attempted eradication of the Gibeonites. But we don't know. We don't know. There's no way to defi definitely know. We only know that the end result was God softening toward Israel through all of these means. And so uh, we, at some level, have to accept what has happened here. Last, um, well, one, one other, two other things. Atonement is always gory and gruesome and horrible. Atonement. Atonement is always bloody. Atonement 
is, is, is terrible in a sense. Here's what uh, Dale Ralph Davison's commentary says. From slicing the bull's throat in Leviticus all the way to Calvary, God has always said atonement is nasty and repulsive. Christians must beware of becoming too refined, longing for a kinder, gentler faith. If we've grown too used to Golgotha, perhaps Gibeah, which is where this happened, can shock us back into truth, and atonement is a drippy, bloody, smelly business. The stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. Right? There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And that, that's, that's the... That is worth contemplating. That is worth thinking about. The fact that your sins could only be atoned for by the, the gory, nasty, terrible judgment of God falling upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, his son. His blood had to be shed for your sins. And it's nasty. It's terrible. It's glory, gory and bloody just as it was in the Old Testament temple. It would be so helpful for us 21st century Americans to have to go back and see one of those days of atonement in Israel. There's the blood running everywhere. The, 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 yeah, part of it would smell nice like a barbecue, right, because they're cooking meat. But a lot of it would be entrails and blood and stench and the crying of animals, right? All of which, if you think about it, all of which is human sacrifice, right? What, what did, what did the, those who brought animals for sacrifice do? They put their hands on the head of the animal, confessing their sins, and then the animal was slaughtered in their place, right? So from beginning to end, all atonement is a picture of the fact that Jesus' blood had to be, human blood had to be given to God in order for him to be at peace, right? So all of that is a picture of something, but it would have been gory and it would have been terrible and that's appropriate because sin is terrible and its atonement must be correspondingly terrible. Last thing I'll mention here is the sadness of Rizpah. It's an example this is a good example to us. Uh, this is a mother's love. This is pity, right? She goes out there. She spreads out sackcloth. She wants to be near her dying son. Her son is, is hanging, and she's the one batting away and trying to honor his body. And um, no doubt her mind at that point was forced to think about the wrath of God. It was forced to think about the uh, terribleness of atonement. It was forced to think about shed blood, death. And she's just there as, as an example of, uh, I guess, being in the moment, of being sad, of being, um, of being present. And so it's a good example. Um, it's a good example to us. 
So that's what I draw out of this passage. Hopefully there are some things you can contemplate uh, further on your own time. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it always feeds us, how it always is, is rich. Even these passages in the nooks and crannies of our Bible that we, uh, we, we don't remember. Father, they are profitable. They are helpful. They, are, um, they teach us, Lord. And we thank you that you have given us all, given us every one of your words that we may know your will. And Father, that we may live in a manner worthy of your son, Jesus Christ. We do thank you for Jesus. We thank you that his death brought about the forgiveness of our sins. That atonement has been made. That his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that death was not his end, but that he rose, he ascended, he sits in session, and he will come again. I pray that we will be ready when he returns and rejoice at his coming. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.